Good morning. Good to, good to see you all and good to be able to worship with you. And I know uh, uh, those of you outside, uh, looks like you're nicely in the sun and looks uh, wonderful out there. And we know as well that because of the current circumstances, there's a number of you that are joining in online. And uh, well, we're, they're on, continue to be unusual times. We're grateful that as a church we can continue uh, to meet. Um, this morning we're uh, starting a new series that I'm uh, particularly excited about and looking forward to. Uh, we're starting a new series in the book of Genesis. And Genesis, as the name implies, is a book about beginnings. Uh, Genesis gives us an account of the beginning of the heavens and the earth, uh, the beginning of light and life, the beginning of the role of human beings in God's creation, the beginning of of the covenant relationship, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of civilization, the beginning of sin, uh, the beginning of the hope in the one that is to come, in the beginning of strife and division, the beginning of death. And Genesis is foundational in so many ways because it's a book of beginnings. And of course, the, the book famously uh, opens in Genesis 1-1 with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And notice the author assumes God's existence. That he doesn't, that he doesn't have a beginning, although everything else does. And this morning, what I want to do as we kick off this series is I want to spend a bit of time before we get into the real meat of Genesis 1. I want to spend a bit of time considering what we might call before the beginning. I want us to think about the backdrop and context into which Genesis 1-1 breaks in. In other words, uh, I want to look this morning at who God is in himself. I want to look at the doctrine of God, really. I, the truth about who God is in himself. What is it to be God? What's essential in the, to the character of God? And whether this morning you're a, a committed follower of the Lord Jesus or you don't follow Jesus at the moment, we're going to be talking about what is one of the most important things that we could ever talk about in life, which is what is God like? When we use the word God, what does it mean? What's contained within that idea? Who is God? What is he, she, it, they like? Because the vast majority of people on planet Earth believe in a God or gods, but they would disagree widely as to what he or they are like. Billions and, and billions of people believe in God. In fact, nearly 90% of people in this country believe in a God or gods. But they have very different takes on what he, she, it is like. Some would say that he's entirely good and he's one. And some would say that he's entirely good and he's three in one. And some would say, well, he, he, he's good and bad, like yin and yang. Uh, there's a light side and a dark side. And some would say that there are thousands of them and you can play them off against each other and pray to this one to bash that one. There are many, many ways people might understand the meaning of the word God. And so today we're asking the question, what is God like? What does it mean to be God? What are we talking about? And my goal this morning really is to thoroughly reorient for some of us our understanding of who God is. 
And that's ambitious, I know, but it's something that I'm increasingly convinced is so very, very important. So I want to share with you how I believe we're to think about God, and I suppose convince you of it biblically, and maybe even help some of us just completely recalibrate our thinking about God. And the way I want to do that this morning is by asking you uh, to consider a series of questions. I'm going to ask you to think about five questions this morning. And the first question is this. If you didn't know what God was like, how would you find out? If you didn't know what God was like, how would you find out? So an alien comes into your life and says, hello, I've, I've never encountered anything uh, about this planet or about the God you believe in. How, how do you find out what, uh, uh, you know, what God is like? What sort of answer would you give? How would you answer, oh, the way we understand what God is like is, you know, dot, 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 like this. How would you answer that question? That's the first question I want you to consider. How do you find out what God is like. Where do you get that knowledge of him? Well, early on in the history of the church, there was a fork in the road, a discussion about this kind of issue. So we're talking about about the end of the fourth century. There's a dispute kicking off in North Africa, in Alexandria, between two kinds of schools of thought about how we get knowledge about God. So Arius... He's the bishop of Alexandria. He started talking about the way we, we understand God. And, and, and effectively, he imagines that our knowledge of God can be worked out bottom up. So he says, what we do is we look at the world around us. We look at creation. We look at human experience. And from, that, from those things, we deduce what God is like. We work our way up from the things that we can see to the things we can't. And so we start with the world around us and we build our way up to a doctrine of God. Meanwhile, Athanasius, he's a a younger guy, he's about 40 years younger than Arius, and he's a deacon in the church in Alexandria. He says, no, 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 those things can help us supplement our knowledge of God, but that's not how knowledge of God works. knowledge, Knowledge of God ultimately needs to come top down. It needs to come because God has revealed himself to us and God has made himself known. We can't figure out what God is like. We can make some guesses, informed guesses even perhaps, but we certainly, we we can't know what the character of God is in himself unless God speaks, unless God reveals himself. And Athanasius said, God has revealed himself and spoken to us in the person of his son Jesus. And that's where our knowledge of God begins. And those are two quite different ways of viewing things. Because if you go with Arius, then you say, well, we can start with what we see and figure our way up to God, just in terms of understanding him from the natural, from natural revelation. If you go with Athanasius, you say, no, you can't, you, you, you can't. You need to hear what God is like as revealed in the person of Jesus. And that's where you start. And that, I suppose, would be, would be two quite different ways of perceiving how we get knowledge about God. And it gives two quite different outcomes. 
Athanasius said, listen, Arius' theology was leading him into some dangerous areas on the person of Christ. And Athanasius said, ultimately, we don't define our doctrine of God from looking at the world and figuring it out. We wait for God to speak. And when God speaks through his son, we take that as our starting point for our view of who God is. And so that's one of the discussions, and it presents a fork in the road that will have implications for the next few questions we're going to ask. The second question for you to consider then is, to answer and consider is this. Who is God in himself? If you had to define the essential nature of God, how would you do that? The alien says to you, I don't know what you mean, so tell me, Who is God in himself? Define for me the nature of God. How would you do that? Who is God in himself? How would you define the essential nature of God? Well, the answer you come up with will be somewhat dictated to by the way that you chose to go at that fork in the road. If you go down the road saying, well, we go with Arius and we say we can... We, we, we can reach knowledge of God bottom up, then probably the answers you'll come up with as to who God is in himself will be something like this. God is in himself creator. Because what we do is we look, well, there is a creation, so there must be a creator. The creation is very large, therefore God must be very large. The creation is physical, and we can't see God, therefore he must be invisible. We we look at the stars, they're very glorious, therefore God must be glorious. We look at the world and we see that there are natural laws, physical laws, so we say God is a lawgiver. We look and we see that there are consequences, so we see that God is a judge. So we get a God who is creator, ruler, and judge. That picture, that that kind of picture of God shaped by natural revelation around you. If you go with Arius. On the other hand, if you go the other way, you say, no, ultimately our knowledge of God, as Athanasius said, comes from a revelation of God in the Son. Then you come up with a very different set of answers. You see Jesus and you say, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son. Therefore, God must be in himself Father. That must be who he is in essence. Because there was a time when there wasn't a world, but there's never been a time when there wasn't a Son. So God has always been Father. He hasn't always been Creator, but he's always been Father. Jesus is the Son, therefore God must be Father. Jesus is the beloved of God, therefore God must be love. That must be who he is. He must be a Father who loves at root in who he is. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to be who he is. So you start with Jesus, and from there, your doctrine of God immediately forms to say he's a father who loves and gives life. That must be what we're talking about. You say Jesus is God made flesh. Therefore, God must be father, son, 
spirit. Certainly Father and Son, and, and we'll see spirit as we go. But, but he must be God, if you like, invisible and untouchable, but also God who has made himself physical and touchable in the person of Jesus. So he must be a God who is in community and relationship. There must be a trinity and not simply God on his own, if you like. And so you start with Jesus, and you end up with actually quite a, a different picture. The essence of God is not quite creator, ruler, judge, etc., but loving Father. And it's not to say that God isn't creator, ruler, judge, because he definitely is. It's just to say that, that the emphasis of the essence of what God is has changed as a result of starting with Jesus rather than starting by looking at at creation. And, and I've got to be honest with you, that is not the way that I have often related and thought about God in my Christian life. I think naturally I bias towards the Aryan view of, of how you get to know God. I think I'm biased towards God as, it, I mean, it, I, I'd probably go, you know, glorious and holy, you know, creator, sustainer, and and, 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 and that emphasis would largely characterize my sense of understanding of God. I think it's so very important for us to see that at essence, God is all of those things. But at essence, God is a loving Father, and that defines who He is. And it's so very important to see that because it's got many implications for the way that we conceive of him and relate to him as, 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 as those who believe in him or even those who don't. We, we need to understand that God is a loving father as a part of who he is. These are two different visions of God. God on his own or God three in one. Two different ways of thinking about him. God on his own for eternity, un until there was a creation, God was on his own, or God three in one, where there's this relationship, love, and fathering built into the essence of who he is. And the Trinitarian vision of God, the Christian vision of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is God three in one, and not God on his own. Because if we look at Jesus for our definition of who God is, we find that at root... At root, he is a father whose love emanates in gigantic waves and brings life as part of who he is. He is generating and providing and begetting the Son and the Spirit all the time as a part of what it means to be God. He also rules. He also creates. Of course, he's untouchably holy and glorious and all of these other things. But at the root of who God is, he's a loving father, three in one, father, son, and, and spirit. So I think that's a way of looking at the second question. God in himself is a loving father. And some of you are now maybe sitting here thinking, why, why am I making this distinction? And why am I bothering to you know, rank the attributes of God? Why do you need to do that? Come on, he, you know, he's primarily this or primarily that. Why do you need to do that? Surely he's all of those things. And he is all of those things. But I think there is a reason for saying that at essence, he is a loving father even before he was a creator and ruler. And the way into addressing that question is to ask another question which is the third one that I'm going to set before you. What was God doing before creation? What was God doing before there was a creation? 
again, it, it depends which way you go in your fork in the road. If you have God on his own, if you say, I look at the world around me, God is creator, ruler, judge, and so on, and he's one, but he's not three. Not, not God three in one, he's just God on his own. If that's who God is, what was God doing before creation? The answer is probably nothing much. He wasn't really doing anything. He was waiting. He might have been thinking, but he, he wasn't doing anything. He was standing around or sitting or who knows, waiting for the day when creation would come. If you follow Arius and, and say that we've got a creator, ruler, judge, God on his own, not three in one, then ultimately what God was doing before creation was not a lot. If, on the other hand, you have a God three in one, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and always has been and always has been bound up in a relationship with one another, then the picture is very different. Let me read to you from John chapter 17. You'll find the words in your worship guide. John 17, the words will also appear up here on the screen as well. Verses 20 to 26. This is Jesus praying uh, the night before he was crucified, and he prays to God the Father to reveal things to his disciples, and he prays as follows. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That phrase is key. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, before it was even built or designed, you, Father, were loving the Son. That's what he's saying. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know me, I know you. Or it doesn't know you, I know you. And, and these know that you've sent me. I made, I've, I made them known. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. In eternity past, God was not a creator because there wasn't a creation. In eternity past, God wasn't a ruler. There was nobody to rule. He wasn't a judge. There was nobody to judge. Right? So say this is creation, this, this period here. This is creation. This is now. Creation was made. What was God doing at this point back here in time? What was God doing? Well, if it's God on his own, not very much. If it's God three in one, God was not creating at that point. He wasn't ruling. He wasn't judging. What he was doing was loving he was loving. He was fathering. He was giving life. He was emanating love and life to those around him. The Father was bringing life to the Son and to the Spirit. That is what he was doing. That, 
There, there was nobody to rule and nothing to create. At that point, what he was doing was giving life and radiating out abundant, lavish affection to the Son and to the Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit were receiving it and reflecting it back and reciprocating it, it caught up in a relationship with the Father. That's what God was doing before creation. What was God doing before there was a world? He was loving. He was fathering. The son was receiving and delighting in and responding to the love of the father. And the spirit was receiving and responding to the love of the father. And and, 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 and they were all loving and dwelling with one another. Listen, that's kind of interesting to the point of being confusing and a mysterious idea. And in the Western church, typically, uh, by which I mean Catholic and Protestant church, really, the, 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 the response has been uh, fairly kind of academic about this. It, it, it's, been a, it's like a, been a very difficult math problem. Hmm, one plus one plus one equals one. How very strange. Let's go and write some treatises uh, on how that all works. And we often get ourselves in a little bit you know, entangled trying to figure out how it all works. The Eastern Church have been a little bit more mellow and mysterious about the, this. They said, you, you know what, we don't really understand it. It's, it's a bit of a mystery, and uh, as we'd expect that with God, wouldn't we? And, and, and actually what we've got in the Bible reveals this wonderful, they got a great word for a perichoresis, it, it, which is a great word to drop in at dinner parties. It means mutual indwelling within. It's the sort of idea that the Godhead is dwelling one within the other. The Father is in the Son, and the Spirit's in the Father, and and the Son's in the Spirit. And there's just this wonderful dance almost of the three of them just joined in unity and relationship together as they celebrate one with another. This mutual indwelling, this mutual delight in one for the other and the affection that they have. And yeah, it, it, it sounds mysterious. It is kind of a difficult for us to understand how one can be three and three can be one. But that's the biblical understanding of God presented to us. And so we say, I don't really understand the math, but it sounds like a wonderful image of an everlastingly loving being celebrating and de- delighting in one another. And that's the exact phrase that Jesus himself just used, isn't it? That you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that's, the exa- that's exactly the image of this one dwelling within the other, delighting uh, w- w- with the other, dancing almost together, mer- metaphorically speaking, a sense of celebration and community that, that's, that's at the heart of the Trinity before there ever was a world. That's what God was doing before creation. So the fourth question to ask then is this. Let's have a think about this one off the back of that. Why did God create the world? Why did God create the world? Well, again, it kind of depends which way you go at the fork in the road. If you have God on his own, why did God create the world? The answer might well be because he was lonely, because he was bored. It was just him. And he thought he needed a world because he needed someone to, to play with. He needed someone to talk to. It was very, all very dull. I mean, imagine for all of eternity, even if you are God, it must be a little strange without anyone else there. And so maybe if you have, if you have a God on his own, the answer might be, 
God created the world because he was lonely. God created the world because there was a deficiency in him that couldn't be rectified or filled without him having something else. And so he created something else to have dialogue with and partnership with. God couldn't be loving without there being a world. And so he created a world in order to, to have something to love. If, on the other hand, you have God three in one, you think, why did God create the world then? We know that God is eternally satisfied and delighting in the fellowship of the Trinity. He's loving, he's happy, he's rejoicing, he's affirming, he's blessing, he's caught up with himself and delighting one in the other, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then the world is created out of that overflow of that abundance and generosity into creating more life because that's what fathers do. It becomes second nature uh, almost, doesn't it? In fact, you can't be a father unless you beget life. That's what fathers do. And so God is creating life because it just comes almost naturally out of this desire he has to bring life to others. He's been bringing life to the Son and the Spirit, if you like, forever. And so, so he then overflows from that relationship, overflows into creating a world because he's got this wonderful life within him that, and he just decides to bubble out, bubble out and share it with others. He creates for the sheer joy of it. He doesn't create because he needs us to praise him. Sometimes I think we can think that when we're singing, forever a holy God, you know, we, we need to keep reminding him, God, you are holy. I, I, don't, I know you've got a bit of an ego crisis sometimes. We just need to af- be affirming you and just make sure, you know, he might have forgotten, guys. Let's sing, sing a bit louder. Come on, God might not know that he's holy. We've got to keep going, otherwise he might crumble. No, no, God in himself is totally satisfied and affirmed and secure and delighting in the relationship of the Trinity, and he doesn't need us. He wasn't going, goodness, I feel a little bit lonely. I better make some people. He created the world out of the overflow of a relationship that already thoroughly satisfied him for all of eternity. That really changes the way you think about your relationship with him. It changes the way you think about worship. It changes the way you think about mission. You think, God does not need me, but he has joyfully given me the privilege of joining him in what he's doing. And there's a radical difference, really, between thinking, why did God create the world? He creates because he loves giving life to other beings. That's what fathers do. And so the fifth and final question then, which I'll just ask you to think about, what is the difference between the Christian view of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and say, the Islamic view of God? What's the difference between God three in one and God on his own in practice? What difference does it make? I would say that although they sound very similar uh, and to many people in Sonoma County, they're, they're interchangeable. Many, many would think, yeah, you, you both believe in one God. Yeah, you just believe in one God. Uh, the, the one God is God in three in one. You believe he's God on his own. But what's the difference? A lot of people would say that they sound similar, but they're, but they're actually very different. Because 
God on his own can be many things. Creator, ruler, sustainer, glorious, etc. But he cannot be in himself love. He can't. Allah, if you like, the Islamic God, cannot be in himself eternally loving. He could only be loving once he created the world, but in himself, he's not love. That makes a huge difference. When you and I come to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying, God, you are not loving just because you made me and people like me to love. You are loving before there even was a world. You have been fathering even before there was a universe or an atom or a star. You have been generating life and loving others throughout eternity because of who you are. That makes a massive difference. As part of who he is, God then is other-centered. As part of who he is, God is outward-looking. As part of who he is, he's giving, he's loving, he's relational, he's warm and generous and affectionate and affirming and all of the things that really good fathers do. That's who he is in himself. It's not who he is at times. He has been pulsating with love and life-giving fatherhood for all of eternity, and he always will. That makes a massive difference to the way you conceive of him when, when you come to worship him. Or if you're not a Christian, come to consider his claims and consider what you're going to do in response. Yeah, and some of us struggle. We see the idea of God as Father. It doesn't sound like a warm word to us because perhaps our own experience of fathers have been so poor. But the whole point about the Trinity is that God in himself is not just the one who makes rules and judges and creates and commands. He's the one who overflows, who smiles, who affirms and gives life and celebrates and delights. That's who he is. And there are few things in life more important than understanding God as Father. In fact, I'm struggling to think of any. And I suspect if you ask people in Santa Rosa, just stop them with a clipboard and ask, describe to me what you think the word God means and started asking people, you might find that the answers they gave sounded more like the Christian concept of the devil than the Christian concept of God. If you stop people in the street and ask, tell me, what do you think of when you hear the word God? Describe him. And people might say strong, powerful, selfish maybe, harsh, judgmental, possibly even violent. And if you were to use words like that, the picture they would be painting is actually the picture of the Christian's view of the devil and not the Christian's view of God. So I have an issue when I'm talking to people about God because I realize that I am using a word to mean someone who is other-centered, life-giving, everlastingly loving, abundant, generous, overflowing, and lavish. That's what I hear when I, when I say the word God, but what they're hearing is something that sounds more like my view of the devil. And so I've actually got some challenges then in discussing the claims of the Christian God with people who don't think that the word God even means that. I need to help people understand, no, 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 that's not, when, I, when I'm talking about God, the God revealed in Jesus is not like the God that you think God is. That's just not the way he works at all. 
It, it might reflect their earthly parents. It might reflect the problem of, of evil in the world. I don't know. It might come from all sorts of places, but the Christian view of God is so thoroughly unlike that. It's so dissimilar from what many people would think the word God even meant, that we have a lot of work to do in explaining what God is really like. If someone says, I don't believe in, in, in God, it might be a good question to ask them. What kind of God don't you believe in? Because it might turn out that, turn out that you, don't, you don't believe in that God either. God three in one is eternally loving. He's joyful. He's generous. He's abundant. Father, Son, and Spirit rejoicing one in the other, dwelling with each other, happy, delighted, loving, affirming, other-centered. Yes, God creates. Of course he does. Hallelujah. He rules and he judges and he commands and he sends and he saves. He does all of those things. But the glory of God consists most definitively in his love flowing out from the Father to the Son and the Spirit and reflected back by them in their love for him and each other. We as human beings, we will enter the picture in due course. In the next couple of weeks of this series, we will see where we fit. But I didn't want to talk about us at the beginning, because the doctrine of God existed before there was ever such a thing as a human being. God was like this way before there was a world, and long before there was a you. And it's so important to understand that in himself, that's who God is. A loving, beautiful, overflowing, generous God who loves others and gives life as a father, as a part of who he is. He is always and ever delighting in the Trinity. And I think that's a very important place for us to just spend a, a bit of time now in reflection and worship as I close us in prayer and uh, doing so using a prayer called the Trinity from a collection of prayers that are found in a book called the Valley of Vision. And so let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore you as one being, one essence, one God, and three distinct persons. You bring sinners to your knowledge and you welcome unworthy subjects into your kingdom. Father, you have loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. Jesus, you have loved me and assumed my nature. You shed your own blood to wash away my sins, and you lived with perfect righteousness in order to cover my shameful rebellion. Holy Spirit, you have loved me and entered my heart. You have given me eternal life, and you have made the glories of Christ known to me. Three persons in one God, I bless and praise you, the triune God. You lavishly and scandalously give me love. Your love is so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, and so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Father, I thank you that in the fullness of grace you have given me Jesus to be his sheep, his jewel, and his reward. Jesus, I thank you that in fullness of grace you have accepted me, espoused me, and bound me to yourself. Holy Spirit, I thank you that in the fullness of grace you have revealed Jesus as my salvation. 
implanted faith within my soul, subdued my stubborn heart, and made me one with Christ forever. Father, you are enthroned to hear my prayers. Jesus, your hand is outstretched to take my cares and burdens. Holy Spirit, you are willing to help my weaknesses, to show me my need, to supply me with words, to pray within me, and to strengthen me so that I will not grow weary in making my requests known to you. O triune God who commands the universe, you have commanded me to ask for those things that concern your kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one who has been baptized into your, into your threefold name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen.